Uh, thank you for coming. I realize there's a lot going on in town today, and uh, I'm not going to tell you what it is you missed by coming here, but, but uh, you did good by coming here. Um, actually, this is a first. Uh, what you're about to hear from uh, Dr. Krosnick uh, is the first release of this study. It hasn't even hit the newspapers yet, and yet I will assure you that it will hit the press. And you will see stories about this survey probably whenever it's ready for prime time. It's ready for prime time, it just hasn't been publicly released. Um, let me take a few minutes at the start to introduce our guest speaker today, Dr. John Krosnick to my left here from Stanford University. I've known him off and on for a couple of years now. I've listened to him give uh, presentations on various surveys he's done going back many years. You've no doubt read about some of these surveys. And, uh, and uh, basically what he's done is kept a pulse or kept uh, resampling the public's attitudes towards global warming in particular. And uh, just seeing what the change in public attitudes are over time, how the attitudes are formed and changed over time, what provokes those changes, um, and there's some surprises in here, I can assure you, having looked at this beforehand, uh, there, there's a handful of surprises. I was quite surprised on several counts as well. And he's also explored in this particular survey the role of the media, and that's an interesting piece. The role of the media in shaping people's attitudes and perceptions about various attitudes, various issues, in this case global warming. Um, he has uh, been a consultant. He's worked on surveys with the ABC News organization, the Washington Post, Time Magazine, New Scientist Magazine. Um, he's been a consultant on surveying from various organizations, universities, um, governments. He's testified on this issue. He's an expert witness on it. He got his degree in psychology from Harvard University. Got his uh, uh, his master's and uh, PhD degrees from the University of Michigan in social psychology. He's got over 100 publications, peer-reviewed publications, six or seven books out. Uh, he's been working this issue or surveying and sampling for a long time and trying to dig into people's uh, psyches, so to speak. Um, having said that, uh, the ground rules are the same. We'll take questions after he's done. We're going to be filming this, so I'm going to ask you to come up to the microphone and ask your question in the microphone so that you get on tape. And I want you to know that sometime next week, in the next maybe seven days or so, we will have restructured our audio and video offerings on our website so that they're all streaming. In other words, you don't have to wait for clunky downloads. Uh, if you visited our site, it's pretty clunky, but uh, this is going to be really user-friendly, and so... I'm going to encourage you to visit the website. Um, last thing I want to say is I had somebody write me out of the clear blue sky, an email. And I wanted to share that email with you. I won't tell you who it was. But let me just read this to you. And I've got it verbatim here, so I don't want to be accused of uh, misstating what was said to me. Because I think it's a fairly common perception or a problem that people have with forming an opinion about climate change in particular. The narrative goes like this. It's just a couple of sentences. I'm interested in someday having a layman's interpretation of the hype 
so many things come with today on both sides. In short, how does the average man, like me, albeit I have a bit of an education, really know about any issue uh, that global warming is real and what, if any, the impacts on me will be uh, in my reasonable lifespan. The person is 58 years old. Now, I hear this all the time. I go on taxi rides to the airport when I'm on business trips, and invariably a taxi driver will turn to me, is it real? And I'm not quite sure how to respond except to give the usual scientific response and say, yes, by all the scientific evidence out there, all the academies of sciences around the world, it's real. Uh, but this notion that there is doubt lingering begs some kind of an explanation. And so here we have today, John Krasnick is going to help us through that. Thank you, John. I don't know whether, is this working? Yes, it is. Okay, good. Um, well, thank you very much, Tony. Yes, lights, great idea. Um, welcome to you all. It's nice to see some faces of old friends and faces of new friends and uh, folks who I don't know, so I'm happy to get this opportunity to share this work with you. And I do want to thank Tony and the American Meteorological Society, as well as uh, Debbie Dunn and Stanford University for making it possible. They both contributed to this. Um, and Stanford and the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford is an important sponsor of the work that we've been doing, studying public opinion on climate change that we've been doing for quite some time. And you can, I hope, see, yes, maybe, the, a list of the folks who we have been working with over the years on this. Um, and I want to just give you a feel that starting in the mid-1990s, really because somebody asked me to, not because I had an interest in it myself, I began doing a line of work that I just have gotten addicted to and can't seem to stop, uh, studying public opinion in this area. And so we've been doing a long line of national surveys starting in the summer of 1997 and going through uh, very recent work, and I'll tell you about that today. All of the surveys that we've been doing have been of representative samples of American adults who've been interviewed by telephone or over the internet. Um, we've used extensive interviewer training and supervision, and we've had unbiased and balanced questions. And uh, the surveys are never described as being about global warming. And so we're sort of sticking this thermometer into the public every so often to find out what people are thinking. And I just want to take one quick second to acknowledge the various data collection partners who we have worked with. We're grateful to all of them in this process. And what I wanted to do today is sort of in four parts for you. The first part is to give you a very quick overview of what the American public has been thinking about climate change during the last 10 years in terms of some typical survey questions that we've been asking. And then what we're going to do is to get into some detail with, as Tony mentioned to you, brand new data that have been not presented before to the public, talking about two principal issues. One is what I'm going to call the public's big mistake. And as you'll see in a moment, the public understands the science of global warming, at least according to the mainstream science community, remarkably well with one striking exception. And our interest has been in trying to understand why does the public get this wrong? And in particular, we're looking at the question of whether the news media might be causing this misunderstanding by strategies that they've employed to cover the issue. And so we've done uh, scientific experiments to test that that I'll describe for you. In part three of the talk today, we'll focus on amelioration policies. Obviously, that's uh, a big focus of attention in this city these days. And we'll begin by talking about what policies the presidential candidates have been advocating. And then we'll talk about which policies the public supports. And we'll see whether there's a match or a mismatch there and what kinds of 
dynamics we can expect in the campaign and in public thinking in the coming months due to this issue. And at the end, you can think of all this as sort of a smorgasbord, maybe, a little buffet of, of snacks for you to have. And at the very end, I have a little tiny taste of dessert for you, which is on the issue of language. Um, you know that um, the issue gets discussed sometimes as being about global warming and sometimes is addressed as being about climate change. And the question is, does that matter? Does it matter in the public's thinking which of those terms you use? And so we've done an experiment I'll tell you about to look at the impact of that. So let's start with part one, so I can give you a feel for what the public has been thinking over the time period for, from 1997 to 2007. Um, here's a question that we've asked in lots of our surveys, uh, and, it's, and I'll tell you now that the phrasing of these um, little uh, shorthand titles at the top are not the wordings of the questions that we've asked, they're just to help you understand quickly what is being addressed by the question and in a balanced and more extensive way. We asked people, did they think the world's average temperature probably had been heating up gradually over the last 100 years or probably had not been heating up gradually over the last 100 years? And you can see that even as far back as 1997, a very large majority, 79% thought that the planet had probably been heating up. That number in 2007 is now up to 84 and 85%. Uh, when we asked people how sure they are that the planet has been heating up gradually over time, uh, there, we gave people a rating scale, and the top point on that rating scale is extremely sure, and you can see that the proportion of people who place themselves at that top point surged up as of last summer, about a year ago, June of 2007, and has been at about a third of the country or so as compared to lower levels previously. So uh, certainty is rising, although it's certainly not maxing out. Um, when we've asked people about whether the federal government should do more, less, or about the same to address the issue of climate change, you can see that in our most recent 2000 survey, we were up to 70% of Americans saying government should do more, a higher number than we had seen in previous years. And uh, a large majority of Americans, 80%, believe that reducing what they call air pollution, which is, of course, CO2 emissions in their thinking, um, will reduce climate change. And so that is the focus of policy, of course. Okay, so that's part one. What did you get from that? What you got from that is a small taste of a larger set of results showing how really large majorities are uh, on the sides of the natural science community on many of these issues. But as I told you earlier, there's one particular finding that strikes out in our past surveys that is not at all on that same wavelength, and here it is. When we ask people, do you think most scientists agree about whether global warming has been happening, or do you think there's a lot of disagreement among scientists? The percentage of people who get the right answer, who recognize that there is consensus among scientists, has reached a high, as of a year ago, of a whopping 40%. So a majority of Americans get this question wrong. They perceive there to be significant disagreement among scientists. Now, you might say, you know, who cares? What, what difference does it make whether Americans understand what scientists think or not? But as you'll see in a moment, perceiving agreement or disagreement among scientists has consequences for how people think. So the question then that we're going to address in part two here is why is it that most people get the wrong answer to this question? And I could ask you for your guess, but I know what your guess will be. Uh, it will be my guess too, which is balanced news stories. So I don't need to review probably for you the fact that dating back to the 1990s and earlier, when the news media have covered climate change, 
there has been a tendency in this domain, as in many other domains, to allow voices on both sides of the issue to have some say in a news story. So rather than simply saying new scientific study shows that temperatures are going up again or new ice melting or whatever, it's common to see that message complemented by a skeptic who says, you know, not so clear that's really true. And that's the focus here of an experiment that I want to tell you about. Um, now, you might ask the question, you know, why would it be that the news media would balance stories about climate change or anything else? And I want to suggest, as a political scientist, that there are at least two reasons for this. One is, as you know, there's a long-standing accusation in this country that the news media, the mainstream news media, have manifested a liberal bias. And if you worked at a newspaper or a television station and you were aware of that concern and you wanted to see to it that people could not accuse you of manifesting a liberal bias, then you might want to balance your stories whenever possible to minimize the likelihood of that accusation. Quite reasonable. But I think there's actually a second possible motive as well. And that is the idea that a boxing match attracts attention. You know, so think about like the playground in elementary school when somebody hits somebody else, everybody crowds around and says, fight, fight, fight. Um, you know, isn't it fascinating when something like that happens? Doesn't it grab our attention? It's almost like when you drive down the highway and see a car accident on the side of the road, you can't resist stopping. So maybe in some sense, disagreement between experts sells newspapers. And maybe there's a temptation to try to make things as controversial as possible, or at least to acknowledge controversy when it exists because it may make more interesting reading. Now, many folks who write and uh, broadcast in this area will tell you that this balanced news story tendency is something of the past. It is not something of the present. But the public's mind remembers a lot from the past. And so the question we're going to look at here is, what lingering effects are there? But I just wanted to give you a feel that it is true, at least according to uh, a content analysis done by Boykoff recently, that, and this is just one particular analysis of news media stories in the US, looking at discussions of human responsibility for climate change. And what you can see here is this big blue bar shows that overwhelmingly stories in 2006 emphasized that humans were mostly responsible for climate change, and only a tiny number of voices in those stories talked about the idea that perhaps humans are not primarily responsible. But you only have to go back a few years to 2003 when those voices were about equally prominent, and even before that, they were more equal in prominence. And so is it possible that people have sort of formed opinions in that earlier information environment, and that the balance may have some consequences? But this all hinges on this very simple question. Does balance in a news story actually influence people's thinking? And that's the question we're going to ask here. So the new experiment that I want to describe to you is one we built in the following way. We went searching for television news stories with both a mainstream scientist making some assertion in some detail about climate change existing or consequences of it, and then also a skeptic expressing a disagreeing point of view. And as I said, we looked for stories both about existence and about global warming's effects. And then what we did was to edit these news stories by removing the skeptic. So we had one version with the mainstream scientist and the skeptic, and then one version with the mainstream scientist only. And then we took a sample of a couple of thousand American adults and randomly assigned them to one of five experimental groups. 
four treatment groups and a control group. And just for a moment, let me say, you know, for those of you who don't remember the magic of random assignment from introductory psychology, um, it is remarkable how if you take a sample of, let's say, 2,500 people, and you randomly, literally flip a coin to put them into five groups of people, statistically, those five groups of people are gonna resemble each other remarkably well. And then if in a medical study, for example, you give a drug to one group and a placebo to the other group, you can compare the impact of that drug very cleanly. We're doing exactly the same thing here, but in our case, the drug is a television news story that these folks watch. So the folks in group one saw a story where a mainstream scientist with no skeptic talked about evidence that climate change has been happening. In group two, they saw the same mainstream scientist, but then followed by a skeptic saying, I'm not so sure. In group three, they saw a mainstream scientist talking about the consequences of climate change, bad consequences in this case, without a skeptic. And in group four, they saw the same mainstream scientist followed by a skeptic. And in group five, they saw no news story at all. And then after watching this news story, they all answered questions on a variety of issues. So what we can look at is, does exposure to the skeptic in groups two and four have impact on the beliefs that we measured? And does exposure to stories without the skeptic as compared to no news story at all have impact? Okay, everybody got this? Good. So the participants in this study are not a scientific sample of American adults. They're a non-scientific sample who volunteered to do surveys. Um, and they all have computers and internet access at home. And they can watch videos on their computers, which is not everybody. Uh, and they were entered in a $25,000 sweepstakes as a thanks for their participation in the study. Uh, the sample of people who did it was 2,617. Now I say this because as a survey methodologist, it's very important to me to differentiate surveys that are based on scientifically drawn representative samples of adults and studies like this that are not. And in our own research, what we found is projecting from samples like this up to the population is a little bit treacherous, that it is not the case that people who volunteer for studies and computers, internet access, and so on, look identical to the overall population. But the key focus here is an experiment, right? What we're doing is randomly assigning people in this group to different conditions. And social science for at least 100 years has been doing exactly that to learn how people think. So I wanted you to understand the caveat, um, but the good news is you know, we've got interesting data here. So the procedure is these folks are, they receive an email inviting them to participate in the survey. They click on a link to go to a website. The website confirms that they can watch a video. They then watch the video or not if they're in the control group, and then they move on to answer a series of questions about climate change and other issues. Now, I wanted to just actually show you one of these videos so that you could get a feel for it. And I'm going to hold this microphone, which is working, up to the speaker here so you can hear it. So this is the version about consequences of climate change with the skeptic in the story. Climate change concluded that man-caused global warming not only exists, but threatens major changes in plant and animal life. Steve Schneider, an environmental scientist at Stanford, worked on the report. Not only do we think it's going to get warmer, and maybe unprecedentedly warmer, but we may change the incidence of extreme events, that is, uh, droughts, floods, heat waves, El Nino might intensify, and... Perhaps the most worrisome of all to me is increased intensity of, of hurricanes because it's the top-end powerful storms that do most of the damage. Glaciers are receding. Lake and river ice is melting earlier. 
Birds are migrating from the tropics sooner. Marine communities are moving north along the California coast. And coral, very sensitive to temperature change, is dying or bleaching, threatening to ruin the economies of areas that depend on it for tourism. So far, I would argue that we can't claim that's done any harm. But what it says is that even the one degree Fahrenheit is sufficient now to cause an impact on nature. And the projections of the future are, if we're lucky, a few degrees more, and if we're unlucky, 10. And 10, to me, would be certainly catastrophic for nature. The evidence is that uh, we have had a buildup of carbon dioxide, and that's leading to a greener world. We have more plants. In the northern hemisphere, they grow more vigorously. They grow faster. They, they're going further north. Uh, I, uh, I would think that a, a greener world is a better world, because we all either... All animals either eat plants or eat animals that eat plants, including us. So uh, more plants is a good thing. More weeds? More weeds and more, uh, and more redwoods. Moore, who wrote a book on global warming, says studies show it could even have positive economic effects in the United States. All the economists who have looked at it have concluded the effects are going to be minuscule for the United States. And trying to do something about it. However, they're all agreed it's going to be very costly. Okay. So imagine you're sitting at home and you've watched this video and then you proceed on to answer questions in our questionnaire. So let's think about what impact the first message from Steve Schneider, who I'll call a mainstream scientist, had on your thinking perhaps, and what impact the skeptic might have. And in particular, we're going to ask these questions. Does the skeptic make the story more interesting? Is it possible that making it a boxing match makes it a more engaging enterprise to pay attention to? Secondly, does the skeptic make the story more difficult to understand? There's certainly more information, and there's more conflicting information. So does it make it more difficult to sort of walk away with a conclusion and to process the message? Thirdly, does the skeptic increase perceived disagreement among scientists? Now, if you think about this, this is people who watched a news story in May of 2007. They've been exposed to lots of news stories before. Would one skeptic in one story on one sitting have any real impact on people's perceptions of agreement among scientists? We will see. Does the skeptic reduce confidence in the existence of global warming? So here our notion was that if in fact people come to believe scientists disagree with each other more than I realized, Maybe I shouldn't be so sure in my views about this issue either. Next, does the skeptic make temperature increases seem less likely to be human-caused and more likely to be simply natural perturbations of the environment? And lastly, does the skeptic make temperature increase seem less bad? Like, you know, he's obviously not worked up about it. Why should I be worked up about it? Okay, so these are the predictions. Let's look now at the data. First of all, it turns out boxing matches sell newspapers that when you have the skeptic, there is a significant increase in the degree to which people rated the story as interesting. And remember, some people saw the story without the skeptic, and some people saw it with the skeptic. And so we're not sort of asking people, so would you like to see a skeptic? Did it make it more interesting for you? We're looking experimentally at whether adding the skeptic leads individuals who see that person to say the story was more interesting. Uh, the, in this particular case, goes from one to five. But let me assure you, you, all of the differences I'm going to show you have a significance level here. And so in this particular case, it's highly...
statistically significant. And I'll tell you about significant differences and less significant differences. And you, you, know, you can make inferences if you like about the sizes of the effects. Just remember, it's one story. Okay, now, it turns out adding the skeptic did not make the story any more difficult for people to understand. This is not a statistically significant difference in ratings of difficulty. So it looks like, at least so far, adding the skeptic is a positive because it makes the story more fun and it doesn't make it more challenging. However, what about our third hypothesis? Does it affect, does one story with one skeptic have an impact on perceptions of agreement among, let's say, thousands of scientists? And the answer is it does, and a big effect. So look in particular here at, this is a question that I've told you before, do you think most scientists agree about whether global warming has been happening, or do you think there's a lot of disagreement among scientists? And you'll see here that in the group that saw no story at all, 58% of them got the right answer. A not statistically significantly different 57 got the right answer in, among people who saw only Steve Schneider. But when they saw the skeptic, and I'm sorry, this is not just Steve Snyder, it's also the other story as well. Um, in, when they saw the skeptic, there is an 11 percentage point drop, highly statistically significant, from one story in decreasing the percent of people who think that scientists agree with one another. One story, 11 percentage points drop. Now it turns out that contrary to our expectations, that story, that had no impact on people's certainty that when we asked how sure are you that global warming is happening, that confidence rating did not vary significantly across the three groups of people. So even though there's an increase in perceived disagreement, it did not challenge people's personal certainty about the issue, but it did have two other important effects. One is that when people saw simply one story from a mainstream scientist about either the existence or effects of climate change, it led people to conclude that it was more likely to be caused by humans, and that's a statistically significant increase in this proportion. But when you add the skeptic, the effect goes away. The skeptic removes all this impact that the educational intervention might have, you might say. And lastly, you can see a similar effect on people's judgments about whether global warming will be good, bad, or neither bad, good nor bad for people. So the mainstream story and no story are actually not statistically significantly different from each other. But in this particular case, there's a highly significant difference. When you add the skeptic, people are less likely to think climate change will be a problem. Great. Well, of course, we didn't, well, I shouldn't say, of course, we didn't ask that question in this survey. So that would be an interesting thing to investigate, um, is the question of whether the respondents who participated in this study know the relative proportions of mainstream scientists versus skeptics in the population of scientists. But my guess is they don't. And that's what's partly allowing this to happen. Now, let me show you that what's particularly fun about the statistical analysis that we did is that we're able to do something called an analysis of mediation, to look at how the psychological process unfolds. And what this analysis shows is that seeing the news story with the skeptic significantly increases perceived disagreement among scientists. You know that. 
And the perceived disagreement among scientists causes people to be less likely to blame human for, humans for warming and to be less likely to say that climate change is bad. And the impact of the news stories on these variables is completely mediated by this pathway. In other words, the news story affects this, which in turn provokes the changes over here. So the story here is about perceptions of scientists producing changes in beliefs about the phenomenon. So in fact, it does look like our respondents are looking to the scientific community and their perceptions of it to make their own judgments to at least some degree. Now this is only from one story. So think what would happen if somebody was exposed to two stories or maybe even three stories. But as you know, people are not exposed to one or two or three stories. According to this analysis of the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles Times, in the early part of the 2000s, they were seeing hundreds of stories in these newspapers every year and large numbers before. And this picks up in 2004 and follows through the beginning of 2007. The Wall Street Journal alone is at over 160 stories in a year, excuse me, in a quarter. The New York Times at the end of this is over 350 stories in a quarter. USA Today is over 80 stories in a quarter and the Washington Post is over 350 stories in a quarter. They're not seeing one or two or three. They're seeing a lot. Okay, so I hope what you've seen so far is at least some suggestive evidence that balance in news stories can have important consequences for perceptions of scientists and for perceptions of the phenomena itself. But it turns out this experiment revealed two other interesting findings that I wanted to share with you as well that we didn't fully expect to see. Um, so imagine that you're in the business of trying to convince Americans that climate change is happening. And you saw our survey results, and you know that the proportion of people who believe this is already at 85%, so you don't have a long way to go, and maybe you can't get much higher, but let's just say you want to try anyway. And in particular, you might say, well, I saw that slide earlier showing that not everybody is 100% certain that it's happening. Can I increase their confidence? What's the best way to do it? Well, if you're a rational, respectful person, you might think, well, the thing to do is provide evidence that it's happening. Show people evidence that climate change is occurring. Seems straightforward. But it turns out when I was on the faculty at Ohio State University before going to Stanford, I had a department chair who had a magical ability to have a conversation with us faculty members in the department. You'd walk in thinking one thing, and at the end of the conversation, you would think exactly the opposite. And you had no idea what did he do to get you to change your mind on this thing. And eventually, I realized what he did. And that is the second possibility that we explored here. The idea is that rather than arguing that it's happening, assume that it's happening and talk about the consequences instead. So what he would say was, you know, of course, since we're going to hire her, which office are we going to give her? And I'm thinking, wait a second, we're hiring her? And, and he's well past me by that point. And so rather than making it a point of controversy, not only making the assumption that it's happening or is real, but also sort of acting as if that's a, not a big deal, and yeah, so we'll deal with that, um, might be more effective at actually convincing people. And it turns out, in our study, we saw exactly this. That if you show people, as compared to a story providing, excuse me, as compared to people who saw no story at all, if you provide evidence from a mainstream scientist with or without a skeptic, making the claim that the temperature in the world has been going up, that has no significant impact on that belief. But when instead you see a story that assumes the temperature is going up and talks about all the effects it's going to have, that produces a highly significant increase in the percentage of people who think it. So you know, keep that in mind when you're trying to persuade your faculty members to uh, 
hire somebody. Um, lastly, in this domain, let me tell you about an, another question that we asked, which was about trust in the news media. We asked people about the extent to which they had confidence in the news media to provide accurate and balanced stories. So uh, as you know, the public learns about science on global warming through the media primarily. And I'm sorry to say not everybody trusts the media to be accurate and fair. And so the question we asked is, do people who trust the media more accept mainstream scientific views more? And what we found, to my great surprise, is yes and whoppingly so. So let me show you some examples of this. So what we've done is to split the population into one-thirds, the lowest one-third in media trust, a moderate one-third, and the highest one-third in media trust. And here is the percentage of people who think the planet's been heating up. As you move from low to high, that percentage increases from 65% to 92%. On certainty that the planet's been heating up, that percentage increases from 51 to 71. On the question of whether climate change will be bad, that percentage increases from 47 to 80. And on the question of whether government should take action, the percentage increases from 47% to 86%. Big, big increases. So if you trust the messenger, you accept the message. If you're skeptical about the messenger, you are far less likely to do so. And I'm suggesting here that trust is a filter at work when people are exposed to the messages. And our experiment allows us to see exactly that. So here we have the lowest one-third in trust and the highest one-third in trust. And we're comparing now people who did not see a video to people who saw the video with the skeptic. And you can see that the skeptic decreased belief in agreement among scientists by nine percentage points among the skeptical viewers and readers, whereas by double that, 18 percentage points among the highly trusting folks. So what that means is if you trust the media, you accept the message more strongly. So one way to look at these results is that lack of trust in the news media may be inhibiting acceptance of mainstream science. So if your agenda is to enhance acceptance of mainstream science, I guess you have two choices. One, perhaps try to increase confidence in the media. And the second is try to get the message out in ways to skirt the media and go more directly to people. So that filtering isn't at work. In addition, what we've shown is that balanced news stories appear to have discouraged people from believing that there is consensus among scientists, that global warming is caused mostly by humans, and that global warming will be bad. So again, in this case, it looks like news media efforts at either providing a boxing match or avoiding the criticism of bias may, in fact, have inhibited acceptance of mainstream scientific views. Whew. OK, congratulations. That's the end of part two. Now we have part three, and then we will be on our home stretch. We'll talk now about the presidential election. You might care a bit about that. Um, first, let's begin with what are the candidates saying about climate change? You probably know this, but let's just review quickly. Here's John McCain's website. And if you click right here on the little link for issues, you'll see that climate change is now on here. Climate change was not on this website during the primaries, but it's now on the website. And when you go to that page, you see John McCain's principles for climate policy. And right here is the centerpiece of his policy, the cap and trade proposal that undoubtedly you know, where permits are either auctioned or given out, and the permits regulate the amount of CO2 emissions companies can produce, and they can, of course, trade those permits among themselves. If you go to Barack Obama's website, there's also an issues link, and there's uh, energy and environment here. And if you go to that page, it's actually a longer 
two-page set of text with proposals, and the cap-and-trade proposal is at the very top as well. So the candidates do seem to agree on that. Interestingly, when you look at their pages, there's no mention of economic incentives for consumers, no talk about carbon taxes. Is that wise? Now, economists would say, well, you know, why wouldn't you want to think about carbon taxes? You know, increase the price of gasoline, people drive less. Increase the price of electricity, people use less. It's a pretty good way to reduce emissions. As it turns out, in our, in our studies, it appears that the candidates are being absolutely very wise in not pushing carbon taxes. Because if you ask Americans, how do you feel about increasing taxes on electricity to reduce the amount that you use it? Or how do you feel about increasing taxes on gasoline to reduce the amount that you use it? People say, increasing taxes to manipulate my behavior? I don't think so. So you don't get everybody. You get about one-fifth of Americans in 2006 and again 2007 supporting taxes on electricity, and actually a slightly larger number in those years, maybe before the big gas price increase recently, uh, supporting increases on gasoline in order to reduce that, which might be viewed as a bit more discretionary than electricity. But looks like probably best for the candidates to stay away from that. When we asked instead about whether government should either require of businesses or encourage with tax breaks the following strategies, we saw much, much more public support. So for example, we asked about whether government should require or encourage car manufacturers to build more efficient cars that use less gasoline. Huge percentages of Americans in favor of that. Building more efficient appliances that use less electricity and therefore are responsible for less emissions, huge majorities in support of that. Building more energy efficient buildings, huge majorities in support of that so that there's less cost and energy use for heating and cooling. And lastly, reducing greenhouse emissions uh, by power plants, huge majorities supporting government action in those regards. Now, being the sophisticated consumer of these data that you are, you say, wait a second. Do people know when they're answering those questions that this stuff is gonna cost them more money? If they knew it was gonna cost them more money, that a more efficient car is more expensive, that a more efficient air conditioner is more expensive, that a more efficient house is more expensive, maybe they wouldn't be so quick to support all this stuff. So what we did was to explore in another survey whether if we specified the cost to them of these various changes, would that change the degree to which they supported these kinds of efforts? And as you noticed, we hadn't previously asked about cap and trade at all, and cap and trade is, of course, the centerpiece of the two candidates' campaigns on climate. So how do people feel about that? Well, the new study I want to tell you about here is one that we did recently with New Scientist Magazine and Resources for the Future. And we collected the data for this over the internet. But in this case, uh, we did have a representative sample of Americans. The way Knowledge Networks does this is to make random digit dial telephone calls to American households to offer people the opportunity to join an internet survey panel. And if they do not have a computer or internet access, Knowledge Networks provides it to them at no cost. So therefore, you don't have a self-selected group of people. You have people who are scientifically sampled. And you don't lose people without computers and internet access. You have everybody. The panel of respondents completes questionnaires weekly. And they do, in many comparisons with benchmarks, yield representative samples. So in this particular study, what we did was to describe a series of policies to reduce emissions in great detail. Remember, these people are reading on computers. So we provided many paragraphs of description of each of the policies you're going to see. And we specified specifically what the reduction in emissions that would be achieved by each of these policies, a relatively humble goal of 5% by 2020. 
And we were very specific that if this policy is implemented, here's the cost it would be for your household. And we asked respondents to vote in favor of or against each of the policies that they considered. And there were six policies in two domains. We asked about vehicle fuels and electricity. And we asked about three ways of reducing emissions. The first is low carbon standards that is on Barack Obama's website. That is a policy whereby industry is required to reduce emissions by a certain amount, by whatever methods they like. It is not on John McCain's website. Emissions taxing, in this case, taxing of businesses for the emissions they produce, which of course we told people would be passed along to consumers in higher prices. And lastly, a cap and trade program, which is on both of the candidates' websites. And we randomly assigned each respondent to be told either a low plausible price, a moderate and most likely price for this policy, or a high and yet still plausible price. And the, this is one of the places where our colleagues at Resources for the Future came in in helping us specify what those prices were. So the question we begin with is, as you increase the price on these policies, are people less and less favorable? Economics uh, tells us that if people are not responsive to price, they're probably not paying attention to the survey. Because in normal behavior, as the price of a good goes up, people are, in general, less willing to buy it. And in fact, what we saw is exactly that. And I want you, I'll show you these results in detail in a moment. But I just want you to look at this picture to notice the sort of ski slope pattern in every one of these six graphs. So we have the vehicle fuel results on the left, the electricity results on the right, the low carbon standard at the top, carbon tax in the middle, and cap and trade at the bottom. And as the price goes up from low to medium to high, in every one of these cases, increasing price produces fewer people voting for the policy. Again, this is what we call a between subjects experiment. So people only see one price, and they react to it accordingly. So people do seem to be sensitive to price, and they seem to be sensitive to exactly what the policy is as well. So it turns out, at the lowest price, by a clear margin, the most popular way to reduce emissions by 5% by 2020 is in the electricity sector using the low carbon standard. 75% of Americans, even when they're paying for it and they know how much they'd pay for it, support that approach, which, as you know, is on Barack Obama's website and is not on John McCain's website. A bit less popular is the carbon tax. And notice, only barely a majority of people at the low price support cap and trade in the electricity domain. In the vehicle fuels domain, all of these policies are less popular, but the same rank ordering appeals appears. So people like the, the low carbon standard most, and they like the cap and trade program the least. So at least according to these results, at this price, it looks like the most plausible way to successful way to go would be the strategy that's on Obama's website and not on McCain's. What about if we raise the price to a more likely reasonable level? Well, it turns out the same thing's happening. Still, the low carbon standard is above 70% in support in the electricity domain. Um, and uh, if you go to the very high price, even here, the low carbon standard, when people know it's going to cost them money and they know how much it's going to cost them, they are still at a 50% rate voting in favor of it. So that suggests a particularly popular strategy. Now, let me show you just very quickly one other piece of evidence that to me suggests people are being thoughtful in making these judgments. This is a multiple regression where we're predicting votes in favor of or against each of these policies. And we have a series of predictors that are all in the equation at once. And what this first line tells you is that as the respondent would pay more and more for the fuel increase, 
the less likely that person is to vote for the fuel increase. That is, as you know, people vary in two ways in terms of how much uh, fuel costs impact them. One, how much they drive, and two, where they live, because prices vary. So we've geographically adjusted this number to take into account people who live in California pay a lot, people who live in Ohio who pay, pay less, and also people who drive a lot and people who drive a little. The more you would be hit by the gasoline tax, the less likely you are to vote for those policies. The more electricity you pay for, the less likely you are to vote for these policies. That seems to make sense. People who believe that global warming probably has been happening, sorry, the little typo there, um, are much more likely to vote for these policies than the relatively small proportion of people who think it's not. On top of that, people who call themselves environmentalists are more likely to vote for these policies than people who don't. People who call, them Democrats, who call themselves Democrats controlling for everything else are more likely to vote for the policy. People with higher incomes are more likely to vote for it, put it the other way around. People with less money are less likely to vote for paying more. People who are older are less likely to vote for the policies, perhaps because they'll be dead by the time any of this happens. <laughs> On the other hand, people who have children or teens living in their household who presumably will not be dead by the time all this happens are more likely to vote in favor. And lastly, a pattern we've seen in lots of our surveys that for some unexplained reason, we have not figured this out yet, people who live on the west coast of the United States are particularly likely to vote for these policies. So it's not so risky, after all, for Arnold Schwarzenegger to be pushing some of these things. So what can we conclude from this so far? Well, what we've seen is that the electricity sector is preferred by a large margin over vehicle fuels for this kind of emissions reduction that the low carbon standard is preferred the most, that taxing businesses for carbon emissions is preferred moderately, and cap and trade is preferred the least. Sounds like a landmine. So why is cap and trade so unpopular? What's the problem here? Because as you know, cap and trade in some sense has a cap. It has a low carbon standard built into it, and it's got a little trading added on. What's the problem? Well, here's the question. Uh, what might account for this, and I'll propose a series of hypotheses that we tested. Maybe, first of all, giving away the permits doesn't appeal to people, and auctioning them appeals more. You know those are two options that are on the table at the moment, and uh, in the way we did the study I just told you about, we described the permits being given away. So in the new experiment that we've done, and I'll tell you about now, we told some people, randomly selected, that the permits would be given to companies for free, and we told other people that the current permits would be auctioned to them. So does auctioning permits enhance popular support? Next hypothesis. Maybe people thought cap and trade wouldn't work. I mean, you do have to sort of make an assumption, right, that it's going to be effective in reducing emissions. So what if we told people that actually cap and trade has been used to make the Clean Air Act effective, and that in fact it was in reducing acid rain? Would that be reassuring about the effectiveness of it? Third possibility. Maybe people didn't realize the reason why cap-and-trade appeals to economists, which is the idea that it's very efficient. Instead of requiring all companies to reduce their emissions, you allow the most efficiently reducing companies to do the work. Maybe if we told people about that, they would be more favorable. And lastly, maybe people think it's not enforceable. Maybe people wonder about, can government really monitor where these permits are and monitor the emissions? So what if we told them about the mechanisms that would be used to enforce it to reassure, them, reassure themselves about that? So in this experiment that I'll tell you about now, 
This is, again, another non-scientific sample of American adults who volunteered to do the surveys, and they were entered in the sweepstakes, and there were 2,837 of them. We randomly assigned them to get various messages. So they all read the same lengthy policy description of cap and trade that our prior respondents saw, plus some people were told that the Clean Air Act worked, and so we provided an argument to suggest that it's effective. Another group was instead told that cap and trade allows companies that can reduce emissions cheaply to do most of the work, so that's the efficiency message. Another group was told government can monitor fuel consumption by businesses, which means it's enforceable. Okay? And now we're going to look at what impact these messages had. In addition to a cross-cutting experimental manipulation telling some people the permits would be auctioned and others being told that the permits would be given away. So first of all, let's look at the last issue. Does moving from giving away permits to auctioning permits make people any more or less positive about this program? And the answer is not at all. These two bars are not statistically distinguishable from one another. So that's not the problem. And, yep. Yeah, great question. Um, yes, elsewhere in the study. And let me hold, hold that thought for just a second, and I promise I'll come back to it. Um, because obviously, so the key point here is if you auction them, you make, government makes money. And not just money, like a lot of money is what I've heard. And so what's going to happen to that? Okay. Um, now, what about, so now we're going to combine those two groups together and look at the impact of just simply the basic description versus telling people it's efficient, it's enforceable, and it's effective. So what about if you tell them, you know, economists think this is a fabulous idea because it lets the companies that can do it best do the work. Guess what that does? Produces no statistically significant change, in this particular case from 41% to 46%. Okay, too bad. What about this? Enforceability? No, it doesn't work either. You tell people, yeah, yeah, government can monitor the amount of emissions companies put out. People say, okay, I still don't like it. But when you tell people it will work and that it has worked with the Clean Air Act, look what happens. You get a highly statistically significant increase from four sentences buried among 12 paragraphs of information. You add those four sentences and people say, oh, okay. And most importantly, so this is a 16 percentage point increase from just four sentences in support for cap and trade by telling people it's been done before and it's worked. And let me show you how we saw that this was at work. This is another one of these mediational analyses. So we could see that mentioning the Clean Air Act success significantly increased people's belief that cap and trade would be effective. We asked them that question directly. And it's that belief which then led them to vote in favor of cap and trade at a higher rate. So what we've done here is to reject some hypotheses. It's not about enforceability. It's not about um, efficiency. The hesitation at least seems to be about effectiveness. So maybe it's not a landmine. Maybe what needs to happen is if this city decides that cap and trade is the way to go, that educating the public on this issue may be the way to garner public support. So the problem with cap and trade at the moment is that people don't believe it will work. And to sell it to the public, if you were interested in doing that, education on effectiveness is what's needed, not on other points. Now, I hope, if you let me pause for just a quick second, that you've gotten a sense of not just the findings here, but you've also sort of seen how we can test messages. So if you're in the business of educating the public, or if you're in the business of persuading the public, you can sit at your desk and think up what would really be a great persuasive message. 
And you could even show the message to people and say, how persuasive is this? And you could even do that in a survey. And it turns out lots of political campaigns do just what I said. They say, here's something you could say about John McCain. How persuasive is this? Turns out we've got 50 years of psychology saying that's a big mistake. What you should do is what we just did. Expose some people to the message and measure the judgment you want to affect and see whether it moves. And if you see that it moves, that's exactly the outcome you want to produce in the end. And so this is a methodology that has a lot of value, I think. Okay, now, a bite of dessert before I stop and we take questions. Um, you know that in this discussion, I've vacillated back and forth between the term climate change and global warming. And you know that there has been lots of discussion um, in this city and elsewhere about the idea that language matters. You might be able to affect the way people think about an issue by particular choices of words. And Frank Luntz on the Republican side and George Lakoff on the Democratic side have been particularly prominent in making this argument. So maybe you might say, global warming sounds unnatural. I mean, warming doesn't sound bad. That sounds kind of cozy. But um, that doesn't sound like something you want, probably, the planet heating up. Whereas climate change, perhaps for many people, they'd say climate change, you know, happens all the time, right? Today it's raining, tomorrow it's not raining. Isn't that climate change? Uh, so perhaps when we do surveys, when we have discussions, when we have debates, if we use the latter term, perhaps that's a way to reduce public concern about the problem. So we explored that in an experiment by randomly assigning some people to be asked about how serious they perceive global warming to be and other people to be asked about how serious they thought climate change would be. Here's the question. If nothing is done to reduce global warming in the future, how serious a problem do you think it will be? Versus if nothing is done to reduce climate change in the future, how serious of a problem do you think that will be? Okay, let's take a quick little vote. How many people vote that global warming will arouse more seriousness? Everybody has to vote. Okay, how many people vote climate change will evoke more seriousness? Okay, you're all wrong, because it turns out <laughs> there is no difference at all. Now, I don't mean to overgeneralize this, but what I will tell you is that you want to be cautious about claims that language matters, because you can make up stories like I just did and say, doesn't this sound like this and that sounds like that? And we, I think we'd be much better off if we used this term. And people are smarter than that. And so be careful about assuming that's true. I mean, maybe you're not causing much damage if you happen to choose one term over another and people sort of get it either way. But in my experience, you might look at these studies I've told you about and said, wow, it is incredibly easy to get people to change their minds on issues like this one. But it's not really true. It's the, it, these particular studies on this issue were targeted with particular agendas. And as you saw in the last study, for example, lots of messages didn't work. And it's not the case that people are quite so push-aroundable as some folks claim. Okay, so conclusions quickly. First, to go back to the beginning, balanced news stories led to less perceived scientific consensus, less perceived human responsibility for climate change, and less harm. So it's, at least according to those who advocate the natural scientist position these days, it's probably a good thing that the news media have abandoned the commitment to balance, although some claim they haven't completely eliminated that. Secondly, lack of trust in the news media inhibits acceptance of mainstream scientific views. So for those in the scientific community who are frustrated about not everyone in the public endorsing their views of climate change, part of the problem is out of their hands. It's got to do with the relationship between the public and the news media as an institution. Third, 
cap and trade is unpopular, at least partly, if not principally, because people don't think it will work. And so public education campaigns should focus there. And lastly, I've told you that in this particular case, language doesn't matter. Don't agonize about whether you're talking or thinking about global warming or climate change. It's all the same. OK, um, now, one last word before I thank you. Um, I really appreciate your engagement, attention, and I've enjoyed all the eye contact um, during this, whatever it's been, an hour, uh, and your patience with all these data. And I especially appreciate the opportunity to share them with you, and I hope that they are of some value to you in the work that you do. And I hope that you will also not only see value in these data, but in the methods that have been used to generate them. And you can see that future action on the Hill may well be better informed by what the public thinks and why people think it. Thank you very much. I'm going to ask everybody that has a question, and I know there's only two or three people that have questions, <laughs> to come up and ask it into the microphone because we're on tape. And I thought I'd cheat a little bit by starting it um, John, uh, there's some psychological literature out there that basically points to the fact of how difficult it is to change a person's mind once they grab onto an idea. In other words, it gets back to this notion of why that number stays so resilient about people believing the, the, that the science community is largely not in agreement over this issue. And maybe that gets to, to the fundamental reason that it's much more difficult to change a person's mind after they've got an idea in their head. You want to comment? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so a couple of things. One is that uh, I think what I've shown you is that the, the balance of news stories from years ago is probably still having an impact on how people think about this issue. Because if people could only like remember the last couple of days and the stories that were out there in the last couple of days, then this misperception of scientists would not be sustained. And you know, there's every reason to believe, let's face it, you know, the next, the 400th headline in the New York Times that says, uh, temperatures going up, we got more ice melting, we got a, another polar bear who's unhappy, whatever those, those new pieces of evidence are, it's not really new news for people. And you can imagine how people would sort of look at that headline and then perhaps move on and not actually notice that the story is no longer a two-sided story. So there, that's one possible explanation. What it has to do with is the degree to which people take in information that might update their beliefs. But the fundamental thing psychologists have learned about attitude change is that there are sort of two groups of people, and I'm oversimplifying here on any issue. There are the people who have strong, solid opinions, and there are the people who do not have strong and solid opinions. And there's a certain degree of irony here. Imagine that you're running a political campaign, and you want to convince people to vote for your candidate. So you develop what you think are fabulous ads, and you put these ads on TV so that the people are to those ads who will then adapt their candidate preference accordingly. Here's the silly thing. The people who you can change are the people who don't have solid attitudes. The problem is they're not going to act on those attitudes. They're going to stay home and do something else on election day. Or whatever change you might produce, it will bounce right back to where it had been before. So the irony is the very people you can change are the people who are least likely to act on whatever belief you implant temporarily in their thinking. And what's been left out of campaigning is the fact that after you change people's opinions, you have to put a drop of glue on them. You have to hold them there somehow. That's the challenging part. Move them, 
and glitter. And that's what campaigns don't do. My name's Martin Apple, and I'm a scientist. My question is, you use the word balanced reporting. To me, when you put a one pound weight on one side and a one ounce weight on the other, and you tell me it's balanced, it isn't. What if you put quotes from 16 scientists who believe something because the data says so and the one skeptic, and put that ratio in, have psychologists done those kinds of measures, and what kind of findings do you get? Yeah, great question. So um, I do not know of any studies that have done that sort of thing. But if in my um, reading of news media coverage of this issue, if you think about news stories, they kind of fall, again, into two categories. They're the ones like the one I showed you that has Steve Schneider, one guy, talking about what he thinks, and then a skeptic talking about what he thinks. That's like one against one. It sounds pretty balanced. Very, very rarely, if ever, I mean, I don't remember an instance, that this news story begins by saying, now, 2,572 scientists agree with the first guy, and six people agree with the second guy. That, that if that were sort of acknowledged in the story, I could easily imagine that it would make a difference. But there's a certain irony to that. Think about you, the reporter, or you, the editor, putting that pair of facts in a story. Isn't somebody higher up gonna say, why are you putting in the skeptic at all if there's only six people who agree with this? So there's, there's a sense in which if you want to put the skeptic in, you sort of can't acknowledge that the skeptic is rare. And therefore, perhaps that contributes in part to this lack of balance. Now, there are other stories, the second group of stories, focus on, yes, the IPCC report, zillions of scientists, very credible. Those stories also don't talk about the the number of skeptics. They just say thousands of scientists think this. They don't say thousands of other scientists don't think it, or six other scientists don't think it. Or, and so the question is, if you really looked at the flow of information, I think you'd have to say people weren't told that at all, or if they were, very rarely. And so, and I do think it would make a difference. Excuse me, hi. It was a very well done study and very useful. Excuse me. Oh, I always hate those beginnings. <laughs> but, it's always a but, huh? Um, uh, having been in a position or being in a position of having to respond to skeptics, those with opinions, but opinions that could be swayed, and those who simply rant strong opinions whose minds would not be changed short of having the oceans boil away in front of them, um, I can see that uh, there are many holes in your procedure through which these folks are going to try to dig. We can discuss that later. I'll find if you'd like um, the point I raised was just discussed, uh, so I won't expand upon that. Equal weighting uh, is not applied, so that questions the relevance or the significance and meaning of the survey. Uh, but let me put that in another way. You said one way, uh, one effective approach to, uh, to turn people in, this, in the right direction towards global warming would be to assume it's going to happen and discuss the consequences. Wouldn't it be... Wouldn't it make more sense, or at least more appropriate, to say, let's assume there's a 90% chance that it will happen, 10% chance that it will not, and then discuss what will be the consequences if we don't act versus if we act. If we don't act and it happens, obviously there's going to be a lot of consequences, economic and otherwise. Uh, if we do act, well, then we're in a good position if it does happen, and if it doesn't, well, it just comes down to a cost-benefit analysis. And perhaps if we do act and it doesn't happen, there are still benefits to be gained by reducing emissions, less pollution, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. Okay.
makes sense to me, and I, I understand the strategy there. And uh, Steve Schneider, in particular, my colleague at Stanford, you probably know, has been very interested in exactly the issue you're talking about, which is how to describe to people the probability that climate change is what we claim it is, he says, as a scientist, that what the probability that it's human caused, the probability that it will have negative consequences, and the probability that particular consequences will occur. And the new IPCC report has one of my favorite footnotes of all times, um, talking about uh, what language to use to describe probability. So when we say very likely, we mean between an 80 and 90% probability. That's, that's all great. That's fine. But any discussion of that is not what I talked about here. Because what I talked about here was don't mention the percentage probability at all. Just say, you know, since we're going to hire her, since the planet's heating up, you know, and that, that's, a, that's a different approach, I think. And what these results would say is if you want to mention 90%, I, the skeptic, am going to say, how do you know it's 90%? Maybe it's 82%. And all of a sudden, we're now distracted on that issue instead of focusing on the consequences. But that's just what this one study shows. Okay. Actually, before I take the next question, I realized that uh, maybe it was you, somebody in the back, I, was, I failed to follow through on what I promised to say earlier. So I promised to talk about the idea that with auctioning cap and trade permits, what happens to the money, right? And so it turns out we did, there's another piece of this experiment that investigated that very issue. And we looked at what impact telling people about different dispositions the money would have. One we looked at was, what if we said the money will be put toward environmental protection programs? Didn't help at all. What if we said the money will be given to the poor? That hurt. People were less supportive of that. <laughs> but when we said the money will be refunded equally to all American taxpayers, and we described how much of a tax rebate everybody would get over a period of time, support went up considerably. So auctioning permits with a rebate of those funds to everybody, can you imagine government doing that? Uh, made it very popular. Okay, sorry. Thank you very much for coming. You talked about public trust in the media. Is there a sidebar here? Did you find anything out about TV versus newspapers versus magazines, local TV versus network TV? Great question. You're not involved in local TV by any chance, right? <laughs> um, so it turns out trust in the media is an emerging variable in social science. Um, and what we've been finding uh, is a very interesting story. That 50 years ago, you might know Joseph Clapper, who at that time was the head of uh, research at CBS, wrote a very influential book in which he talked about the idea of the, sort of the news media as a hypodermic needle. That if you watch TV or you read the newspaper, the ideas just go into your head. You can't help it. They're just in there after that. And you don't know how they got there, but you believe them. And what he said was, you know what? A zillion studies show this is not true, that the idea that the media simply implant ideas into people's heads is not valid. And what we're finding now is, yes, absolutely, the media do convey ideas that people then adopt if the viewers and readers trust the media outlet. So now that that's important, now we're asking exactly the kinds of questions that you've asked, which is, well, why do some people trust the media? And why do some people not trust the media? And which media do they trust? And what did the media do to get the trust? And uh, you, know, you won't be surprised to know that, in general, Republicans trust Fox News more than Democrats do, and Democrats trust CBS more than Republicans do. Beyond that, we actually don't have a good understanding yet of these issues. Um, and it's, I think, one of the natural next steps for the research to take. So I'm sorry to say I don't have much for you, but maybe in a year or two. David. David Herring, Climate Program Office in NOAA. Um, actually, two quick questions. I'm curious to know, when you were asking the questions uh, in, 
you're setting up the skeptic and the non-skeptic in these media reports. And in terms of the methodology of how you ask the question, did you refer to these individuals as skeptic and advocate, or how did you refer to that, and do you think that could have framed how they answered your question? Yeah, great. So it turns out we never used any language, and we never talked about them at all. All we did, how, how interesting was the story? We didn't ask about anybody in the story. Just how interesting was the story, and how difficult was the story to understand? And then we just marched off saying, do you think climate change is happening? Do you think humans are causing it? So there were, now, if you, if you, uh, you're pointing out, of course, the very issue that we ended with, which is, does the language skeptic change uh, versus contrarian point of view or other ways that we could talk about it? Or here's one legitimate group of scientists and here's another legitimate group of scientists. Um, language might make a difference in that domain. I don't know, but luckily our study, is that's kind of irrelevant for ours. So a half step beyond the, whether they trust in the media, in terms of the source of the information that the media is quoting, like an agency like NOAA, for example, how might that, it may have not been within the scope of your study, but I wonder if you can speculate on how that would also influence the trust on the information coming. Right, so great, great question. So obviously any news story that tells you um, anything about climate change, it's not just like the New York Times saying we've decided that climate change is happening, except on an editorial. Uh, it's always going to be the New York Times you that NOAA thinks this is happening, or the New York Times telling you, thinking, saying that IPCC thinks this is happening. So in fact, there really are two sources there. There are scientists and there are the media who are conveying the scientific view. And what we've seen in our work, not this particular project, is that trust in the media is a filtering factor and trust in scientists is another filtering factor. And so one of the interesting things that happens in a lot of research in the commercial world is sort of brand reputation studies and company reputation studies um, to sort of find out how do people feel about Microsoft, how do they feel about Google, and so on. And what I haven't seen is research in this area asking people how much do you trust information from NASA, how much do you trust information from NOAA, how much do you trust information from the EPA, how much do you trust information from the IPCC. And if one were interested in trying to maximize convincingness of a message, one would certainly want to do that because those kind of factors matter. Thank you. I'm curious with the language and technology question, which terms or which types of discussions are most likely to turn that switch in people's heads where they identify with a discussion that have already formed an opinion, particularly for people who are skeptics about climate change or don't support certain policies? Does discussing policy make more of a difference if you somehow use a new term that they're not familiar with? Are you more likely to be listened to? Yeah, great question. Okay. so. In order for any message to have impact on people, they have to be exposed to the message. And in most cases, it's not like our experiments, right? Because our experiments kind of force people to be exposed. We say, okay, thank you for doing our survey. Here's a video. Watch this. And pretty much everybody does. And so in the real world, though, as you're suggesting, people don't like read every story in the newspaper that hits the table. They don't watch every story on television. So a really important element any educational or persuasive campaign is setting up a message in a way that you actually grab people's attention and they say, I want to read this, I want to hear this, I want to be exposed to this. And it's quite possible that, you know, language is important, but it's also possible that, like, the boxing match thing is important as well, and conflict and contradiction. So this, to me, there's a small irony in this, because if you think about the large community of natural scientists and environmental groups who are unhappy about the media attention that the skeptics have been getting, it's possible that without the skeptics, people aren't going to read anymore. It's not all that interesting anymore without the boxing match. And that's something we have not yet begun to study. 
And so this is something that we could study, and we have done in other areas, where you give people a series of headlines. We say, you can read any of these stories or none of them if you want. And you phrase the headline different ways. Like you say, IPCC issues new reports saying climate change is terrible. Or you say, IPCC issues new reports saying climate change is terrible, but skeptics disagree from MIT or whatever. <laughs> and then are people more likely to read the boxing match version of the headline? Maybe. So, I don't have any good answer for you on what kind of language might grab attention other than a three-letter three word that starts with S that apparently does really well on CNN's homepage. But other than that, you know, which I think is hard to work into this story. But the, the, other than that, I don't have good advice on language. But I could imagine language might be helpful in grabbing attention and worth studying. But I haven't seen it yet. Thanks for a really interesting um, presentation. Um, my question, I, I'm also happy that it seems like the media is getting away to some degree on the balanced news stories. But what seems to be increasing as uh, journalists become more sophisticated in their understanding of climate change is stories like we have seen in the healthcare field, sort of reporting on the latest study, which are often about the consequences and you know what really is happening with Greenland, what's really happening with North Atlantic hurricanes, you know, areas of legitimate scientific uh, debate, even if those scientists don't also believe global warming is happening. Uh, and so I wondered uh, your view on sort of that and how it's influencing the public and how scientists may be able to better communicate on that front in the areas of legitimate uh, discussion in the scientific community about what really these consequences will be. Yeah. That is obviously crucial because if the scientific experts sort of collapse into debates about, well, we can see the ice melting, that we know, but is it actually going to cause Venice to become underwater or not? I mean, should we care? I mean, is it just the polar bears or, you know, we could move the polar bears to like a refrigerator somewhere, wouldn't that be fine? So the, the really, how are the observable consequences right now going to play out. And as you know, the natural science community is not willing to say that Hurricane Katrina was due to global warming. And if they were, you know, that would communicate a certain vivid message to people about, look, you're going to get more of this if you don't do some of that. And that's not happening at this point. And you can't blame natural scientists. I mean, they know what they know and they know what they don't know. If in my domain, I'm not in the business of making predictions. I'm really great at telling you what already happened, but I'm not so good at telling you what's going to happen in the future. And the challenge then is, is it possible that we are going to see a loss in momentum on this issue for that very reason that you're talking about? Because the truth is, OK, planet heats up, people turn up their air conditioners, pay a little bit more, what's the big deal? There have to be more catastrophic consequences than that, except for the argument we heard from a questioner a little bit earlier, which is maybe this is an opportunity to get out of foreign dependence on oil. Maybe it's an opportunity to innovate in other ways and uh, develop new schemes that, uh, of energy generation that have nothing to do with the environment but are just economically good and, and sustainable. So that, you know, that's an argument. That argument so far is catching fire in some domains, but I don't think quite so much as the idea that polar bears and lots of their friends all over the world are going to become extinct. So I, I'm just not, I'm, I'm worried myself that um, we may see ourselves going into a, a phase where the entire issue disappears simply because scientists can't get certain knowledge fast enough. Hi, this is Jennifer. Um, I'm 
this is uh, somewhat related to the first question and, and others, but a little more specific. There have been several studies trying to quantitatively assess the level of scientific agreement. Um, for example, looking at the number of papers that support the idea that humans are contributing to climate change versus those that are skeptical about it. Um, and I'm wondering if you have looked at the impact of presenting that information to the public, or is it better to take the, you know, we've already hired her approach, um, there is scientific certainty approach. And also, uh, a second question, I was just wondering, are you, and if how, uh, planning to publicize the results of your studies, and what impact do you think that will have huh. on the public's <laughs> perception of how they perceive information? Okay, so uh, in terms of the first issue, the, the challenge, I think, is if you do, so I, I'm familiar with some of the articles that you're talking about that have content analyzed publications from natural scientists, and they say, you know, 98% of the published studies show that climate change is happening and a problem in a human cause, and 2% of them are skeptical, and shouldn't the public know that? And I think for the public to know, it wouldn't be a bad thing, but how would the public react to that figure? And I guess my sense is, from the work that we've done before, people who are skeptical about scientists have said in focus group discussions that I've heard over and over again, you know, here's the thing. Scientists are just like everybody else. They're bought and paid for. Whoever they work for, that's the, fi that's the findings they get. And, you know, they all want more funding, so they're always trying to publish whatever will get them more funding. And, you know, for me as a scientist, it's just unimaginable that people would think this because the way science really works, the pressure on us to be accurate is so powerful because if I say something here today that's wrong, there are going to be 20 people who are immediately trying to show that I'm wrong and move ahead in their careers as a result of that. And so, you know... That's the way the game works, and, and it's not always fun, but that's good, I think, because it's a self-corrective factor, and I really honestly believe the scientific community operates that way, and so, you know, why is it that, that uh, Mary Smith down on 16th doesn't know that? Well, why would she know it? Whoever told her that? And so it's understandable that there might be some skepticism in that regard. But, and the question then is if, she, if we tell her, and 98% of publications in science show this, she's going to say, and I care why exactly? So that's, I, I'm, not, so I'm not completely sure. It'd be fun to try it. And I think, frankly, the more evident, we've been talking about more and more and more different kinds of ways of getting this message across in this discussion. And they all seem worth trying. Um, I will tell you a funny thing that I didn't mention about the study that we did, um, where you remember I told you we tried to get people to like cap and trade. We tried to get them to like it by effectiveness and uh, efficiency and enforceability. And I, what I didn't tell you is we had another experimental condition in which we gave some people all three of those messages. We thought, you know, let's hit them with all three hammers. How could that be bad? And it turns out that was not as effective as just telling them about the effectiveness of it. And so if you distract them with too many other reasons, they say, well, that's not convincing, or that's not relevant, or whatever, it actually undermines the message. So I think one wants to be careful not to say, well, let me tell you 20 reasons why you ought to believe this. There's the publication analysis, and there's the this, and there's the that. You know. So you've got to pick what works. And the only way to find out what works is to do a study along the lines you're talking about. Now, I'll say very quickly, what impact is my work going to have on what the public thinks? None, because most people won't know about it. Um, but. Uh, the politicians, that'd be nice if people in this building paid attention to it. If it was helpful, that'd be great. Um, and uh, if policymakers and lobbyists and anybody else who's involved in running this country is somehow educated about these issues in a way that helps move things forward, terrific. Um, I, there is interesting work in psychology on the idea that when you study some phenomena and gain insights into it, it actually changes the phenomena that you're studying. 
But that comes from a very, I consider a sort of humorous little circle, which is um, that social psychologists, uh, my, my background, tend to do, as you know, most of their scientific studies on college undergraduates who are taking intro psych courses and are required to do the experiments in order to get the grade. And then what the researchers do is they data, they write it up, and they put it in the introductory textbooks that the next generation of those students are going to read. And so is it amazing that like the results of the experiment change because you told them about the experiment right before they did it? So that, there, we definitely have that going on, but I, my guess is this is not going to change anything. I don't know if you touched on this at all, but um, do you think that the relative complication of like a cap-and-trade policy versus like uh, just taxing carbon, do you think that people understood that well enough that that set them back at all? Because it seems like a lot of people don't really understand like where the proceeds are going to go, how you're going to run down the credits, you know, over time, like how the whole thing's going to work. Do you think that simplifying that would have a big change or? Idea. And we investigated exactly this. And I also didn't tell you about that because I didn't want this talk to be four hours long. But the, we, we did look at that, and because it is true that explaining cap and trade is just more, it's more difficult, it's more challenging, it's more complex, there's a lot more moving parts than you say carbon tax on businesses, or government says you must reduce emissions by 20% with a standard. So we looked at that issue by asking people how complicated do you think this policy is, how difficult was it to understand the policy, and we found no differences among the policies in that regard. So it did not look like cap and trade is get it. It looks like it's not faring well. Cause you, you mentioned how some uh, effect situations are sort of running aground. The the tropical cyclones issue, for instance, which sounded very firm and is now absolutely uncertain. Um, there are, however, things that I think of as two and three cushion shots. For instance, incredible devastation in the Canadian, Western Canadian forests by a beetle which is able to persist because it's not frozen out by cold winters anymore. Or, you know, the movement of dengue into uh, non-tropical areas and, and, you know, other things like that. Do those things look to be making an effect where there may, where there may be stasis on cyclones? Well, first of all, I'd be amazed if Americans know about some of those instances, um, that they're not nearly as publicized as the becoming a bear, for example. But more importantly, um, you know, let's take the little beetle that's running like crazy around that area. So if a skeptic wanted to say to you, how do you know what the beetle is doing is due to climate change? Did you do the experiment? Did you turn the temperature up in the country and then watch the beetle thrive as a result of that? And you say, no. What's the story for why that might be the case? And the, that's the challenge, right, is that at one time, the scientific community told us the sun revolves around the Earth. And we all know that scientists were wrong on some occasions. And in the back arena, the challenge there for a long time, of course, was did you do the experiment? Did you make some people smoke and some people not smoke and then look at the impact? So the concern that I have, if, if the question is, will, that, will some evidence be more convincing to people than other evidence? Um, because scientists are absolutely sure. It's a four-cushion shot. We know this is absolutely right. My guess is if people want to be skeptical, they can find ways to be skeptical about that, too. 
I just wanted to go back to the language question because, I, well, first I wanted to know if you did anything other than just um, testing the, the strength of, of either, wor either term. Because it seems to me that the skeptics are more inclined to use global warming and then say, hey, but we had a cold winter, there was a lot of snow this winter, there was a, a late thaw. So I was wondering if you went any more into that because it seems to me like the, the term global warming is a little bit more heated. Yeah, right, cute. Um, yeah, so the, the, uh, obviously the natural science community prefers climate change and prefers to kind of focus on the fact that what climate change brings is unpredictability in weather patterns and that global warming sounds like a sort of linear, smooth thing. And so that's presumably one of the important reasons for a preference for using that term. And you know, we absolutely have not gone past what I just showed you yet. And I am tempted to look at some of these other things to see if you, and in fact, in this survey, here's what we did. We said, what does the word, the, the, the phrase global warming mean to you? And we had you know, 1,200 people give us an answer to that. And we asked another group of people, what does the phrase climate change mean to you? And we had another 1,200 people describe that. And so I asked my research collaborator, could he please send me the transcripts of the answers from people yesterday so that I could read them on the plane last night and tell you about them? But it turns out I was busy enough like doing the slides and dealing with United Airlines almost my flight and things of that sort, that uh, to read through 2,400 comments, I haven't done yet. So uh, someday soon we will do that and we'll see. And I think that's a good first step at getting a feel for how people might associate those terms with different phenomena. But it's quite possible that they kind of know that it's the same thing as well, and we'll see. Hi. I was hey. just wondering if there was a geographical effect to the consequences you asked, meaning were people more moved by local, national or global effects? Oh. This issue is coming up like crazy, and I will not attack a particular organization um, by name that has been using the strategy very visibly to say what we need to do in order to get people worked up about this problem is convince them that their local area is going to be dramatically affected by this problem. Okay, well, why would you think that? Well, you would think that because you would say, perhaps, Americans are too busy watching TV and going to McDonald's and going to the movies and having a good time, and they're not really interested in the big picture. They're not really interested in people in Florida. They only care about themselves and the people maybe down the street from them and maybe their relatives, but the minute you start getting like five states away, they don't care anymore. New Orleans, hurricane, who cares? It's fine, whatever. Now, did the country seem to be like that when Katrina happened? I don't think so. And in fact, there's 50 years of research in political science saying that economists' assumption that all we care about is our own is not right. That in fact, what this literature shows is that when Americans think about world and national problems, they think in what's called sociotropic terms, not in selfish individualistic terms. And what that means is people think about the greater good. So for example, you probably know, when the economy declines, the party in the White House is particularly likely to be thrown out in the next president. But it's not because the people who are suffering economically vote against. It's that large groups of people who know about the national economic downturn, even people who are not suffering, vote against that party. And so actually to me, I think this focus on local effects and convincing people that you know the, that little lizard across the street from you is gonna get a lot bigger and it's gonna start eating your plants, it's missing the point. 
that, that if it's just the lizard, I can live with that. But if it's the whole country, that actually is more likely to be a compelling message. And so I would urge those organizations thinking along these lines to do studies like I showed you here, where you try different kinds of messages to convey local effects, regional effects, national effects, and look at this. And I will tell you that in the regression analysis we've done so far, we didn't see any hint at all that what happens locally mattered to people. It was all what happens nationally and globally. So maybe that should make you feel a little bit better about humanity. Thanks. So I, I've had an interesting year on the Hill talking to offices that are skeptical about that climate change is happening and try to convince them that it is. Um, and one thing that I found really effective is to talk about the history of the science. Um, and because for some people, you know, they'll, they'll go right back to, well, global cooling and so forth, but mm -hmm. to bring it all the way back to the 1800s and also sometimes to talk about the amount of money that America has spent on American climate science. And I was wondering if you've looked at that at all and seen if my perceptions of this effectiveness are worn out in reality. And then the, the, the second question is, so instead of climate change and global warming, what about you know, dangerous climate change or uh, you know, rapid climate change? Yeah, well, let's take the latter one first. Let's see. How problematic do you think dangerous climate change might be? So, you know, sounds dangerous to me uh, when you define it that way. Certainly, I think the idea of talking about the phenomena in terms like that obviously conveys something that climate change, those words alone, don't convey, which is that there is at least one possible scenario whereby it would be dangerous. And then I think this brings us back to Steve Schneider's questions, which are what are the probabilities actually of dangerous climate change occurring? And I, I think this is a wonderful case where sometimes when surveys are done, two different surveys are done with different wordings of questions and produce different results, people say, aha, surveys are not reliable because you can ask only slightly different questions and you get really different answers. Well, actually, if one survey asked about climate change and another one asked about dangerous climate change, you would expect there to be a difference in it because they're really different questions. And so you might say, well, if you want to convey the idea of dangerousness, you might as well say dangerousness. But interestingly, does that also shrink the perceived probability of it happening? So if you say, what's the probability of any climate change? Oh, that's this big. What's the probability of dangerous climate change? Well, it's got to be smaller. And maybe it's a lot smaller. And so by making it seem worse, you might also make it seem less likely. And that may not help in the arguments that you're making. If I can Please. Add, just, and, that, and that brings back to, I mean, it's a slightly different conversation, let's say, up here than in the public, but then if you then start talking about insurance and risk management, and if there's a possibility that's not just climate change, but it's dangerous, and that it's maybe slightly smaller than climate change in general, but what's it worth to you to prevent that risk? Yeah, uh, insurance is one of my favorite domains in this area, because for me personally, I don't know how you feel about this, but for me personally, when I heard that insurance companies were jacking up rates on coastal homes and that sort of thing, to me that was really compelling evidence to imagine a rationale for companies to do that unless they think the real risk went up. It's just not in their interest unless you say, well, maybe we can capitalize on public catastrophizing. <laughs> so we got people living along the coastlines and they're all worried about this, so let's charge them more and they'll buy it because they are also worried about this and so they want the insurance. 
And then I realized, oh, maybe it's not so compelling after all. Um, and so there is a real question there about what does that mean from different sources, making decisions. But I think it, there is, I think, real interest in that insurance scenario. Now, you know, one of the interesting questions is who buys insurance, what makes them buy insurance, how many people are not insured and are in denial, which allows them to not be insured. And that's a phenomenon I haven't studied. I couldn't begin to give you insights into. Um, just a quick word about your first question, which was talking about the history of science. I think that sort of thing has to help. It has to help to sort of give the big picture. This is not like five scientists who, like after lunch today, decided to do a couple of climate change studies. It's, it's a long-term, big investment project. Um, at the same time, though, all those reasons to be skeptical of scientists that I mentioned earlier are still going to apply somehow. So I guess, personally, the, you know, this Washington is the home of many things, but it's the home of professional organizations that advocate for scientists. And it occurs to me that one of the things those groups might want to do more is to educate the public about how science really works, to enhance the credibility of all science all the time, you know, 24-7. So, thank you. I have two questions, really. Um, the first is we've been discussing the issue of climate change all morning. Uh, but there's two sides to that question. One is, do people debate whether there, in fact, is a change, or is the debate about whether it's human activity causing that change? Yep. So that, that's the essence of my first question, your evidence that there is a different statistic on both of those issues. Yep. Second one is, when I looked at your video, the skeptic uh, didn't debate climate change. Right. He debated whether it was That's good right. or bad. That's right. But it almost conceded That's that right. it happened. That's right. So I'm wondering if that was a fair skeptic to have used in that video. Yes. Okay. Great question. So it turns out the other video that I didn't show you with a different skeptic uh, disputed everything. Uh, and I'm sorry, I'm blanking on his name from the University of Virginia. He's, uh, yeah, Pat Michaels, um, who, who said, you know, and I quote, you know, anybody who claims that the temperature is going up on this planet due to human activity is wrong. And the hockey stick thing is wrong. I mean, in, in that tone of voice, I'm not kidding. That's what he did. And so in that particular case, there was no sign of hesitating on that issue. And so, as it turns out, the findings are the same, regardless of, you know, the Hoover Institution skeptic who, uh, in a very relaxed way, says a greener world is a happier world. Uh, and he says, it's nonsense. Uh, that either of those seem to work the same way. So that's a little bit reassuring. Uh, on your first point, the, we are absolutely seeing differences, that many more people believe that the planet's heating up in America, over 80% than believe that it's primarily caused by humans, which right now is still less than 50%. Uh, when you put together the percentage of people who think it's either primarily caused by humans or about humans and natural processes equally, that gets you up to the high 70s. But, but human cause is still lagging behind a bit. Appreciate your comments. My name is Herb Stewart. I'm a clinical psychologist from Virginia, where we had a psychologist. Uh, until recently. Uh, and, and that kind of gets to my question, which is about the, the authority of the messenger. Um, and, and uh, you know, you mentioned that the uh, tobacco uh, issue, and, and uh, we watched over 30 years a sea change in attitudes about that in this country. Um, and I think, when I think about that, I think of, of um, uh, the authority of, for instance, Dr. Koop. You know, you can, you can picture a, a credible, authoritative face uh, in, in message. Um, and 
I'm not sure that we, we see that yet in this, this field. Um, and I wonder what your thought is, what thoughts are about that and whether you've looked at that uh, variable in your, in your studies. Yeah, we, we have done actually some studies in the tobacco area. And I was amazed when we got into this work to find how much skepticism there is about the Surgeon General of the United States. And you think, wait a second, what, this guy, I mean, yes, he works for government, but his job is like looking out for the health of all Americans. What's evil about that? And what we found in surveys is that uh, a remarkable number of Americans say, oh, these doctors, they all catastrophize. You know, they don't want me to smoke. They want me to exercise. I can't have cheesecake anymore. All, you know, and, and you know, my grandmother lived to 87. She had cheesecake three times a day every day. So the, there, if you are caught in a dilemma like that, like you're addicted to oil, you're addicted to cheesecake, whatever it might be, the question then is, how do you react to authoritative, gentle figures with an unusual beard? And the... The answer is, you know, kind of like you react to every other source, that there is some reactance against sources who have messages you don't like. Um, now, you know, could Al Gore be C. Everett Koop for climate change? I mean, he's the closest climate change has to that right now. But he's not a scientist. And he's not a scientist, right? Um, and so <coughs> could there be a scientist who has that credibility? Um, Maybe in the next presidential administration, the, there would be an appointment of the equivalent of the Surgeon General, the Scientist General, who would speak to the country about science. Um, it's possible, and I would definitely say, have that beard, for sure. Hi. Um, I, I came in a little late. I don't think you addressed this. I'm told you didn't, but let me raise it. I can understand this debate having this tone if it's sort of Al Gore and the environmental scientists and the UN on one side and others on the other side. I would have thought it would have changed the last month when the Bush administration's you know, top science council, the president's scientists, 13 agencies who spent $20 billion uh, in doing climate research came out with a, a definitive set of findings that you know, on their face would put all this to rest. I mean, so unequivocally, both it's human caused and the consequences are going to be dire. And I'm a little puzzled by the sort of, I don't know if it's, a, it doesn't seem to have landed that way publicly. And, you know, the Bush administration would not have let any of that see the light of the day if there was any doubt, if there was any issue remaining. The fact that it came out under this president seems to me that it, it should have a, a big influence on public opinion. And I wonder if you could comment on that. Yeah, okay, a few comments. First of all, guess how many Americans know that? Exactly. Exactly. And why is that? It's because when that occurred and was covered by the news media, the next day it was old news to the news media. So they weren't going to say, "Hey, did we mention something we said yesterday?" In case you didn't get it, let us tell you again this amazing thing that happened at the White House. And oh, here again is another uh, update. Uh, the same thing that I told you about two days ago. It still happened two days ago. That that you know you 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 can only tell that story once as a credible reporter. And the problem is on that particular day. I don't know about the people in this room. Maybe it's true that you read your favorite newspaper every single day. I don't, and most Americans don't they tune out of the news flow because they're going on vacation, or their kid has a soccer match, or the newspaper doesn't get delivered by accident, or whatever it is. And so as a result, it turns out, in order for the media to get a, a message across about an event, which is really what you're talking about, an event, the only way it's really going to get to large numbers of people is either if it's repeatedly told over and over and over again, OJ Simpson, let's say, or 
if it is something that catches fire in word of mouth. So the media say it once, and then at lunch I say, did you see that thing in the paper this morning? I can't believe it. You know, that, and my guess is neither of those things happened. But you know what I bet more people know about? Is the story this past week about the vice president's office censoring testimony. So even though that's old news, that's months ago, that was back in the fall, and this is the new news from the scientific community, boxing matches sell newspapers, as does corruption. So maybe it's going to take a while for that message to get out. Uh, on that uh, slide where you, had, uh, uh, you listed certain factors, such as being young, being a Democrat, having teenage daughters. Um, that and sons, you, yeah. Yeah, um, <laughs> that made you more likely to... Um, to support taxes on yep. fuel and energy efficiency. Yep. You said that, um, or it, had, it listed the West on there. Yep. You said West Coast, so I'm just curious. Could you uh, uh, define that geographic area that you're referring to? Yeah, it's, it turns out it's, it's rough. It's sort of like the Pacific time zone is one way to think about it. Really? And um, the surveys that we do, typically if we've got 1,000 or 1,500 people, and you've got a chunk of people out there, but you don't have enough people to start separating Arizona from New Mexico, from California, and saying, where's the line? And is it the people right along the coast in California and not the people inland? We don't have enough respondents to be able to do that. And we also don't know their exact geographic locations. We know, sadly, when we do telephone surveys, we know their phone number. But you now know, due to number portability, you can call my Ohio number and get me in California now. So it's, it's, unless you ask people, where do you live, which we could do, um, you can then not be in a position to be able to know. But do, I mean, do you have a hypothesis about? Well, I, I'm just thinking, um, I mean, for instance, politically east of the Cascades in Washington and Oregon, it's a much different atmosphere than it is west of the Cascades. Um, yeah. Whereas Cal and I think California in general is much more democratic than, say, Wyoming or Montana or Idaho or something. Like that. Right. Now, one key thing to remember, though, is in that, the way that regression works is that we're statistically controlling for party identification. Okay. We're statistically controlling for being an environmentalist. We're statistically controlling for whether you think climate change is happening. We're statistically controlling for income, all kinds of other things. So it's like holding all that constant, being on the west part of the country enhances your support even more. Okay. And that's what I don't understand yet. Someday I will figure that out, I hope, but I don't know yet. Okay. Let me know when you do. <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> so I think we are coming to the close. And, uh, but let me take one final stab at this. Um, there's this whole realm of social norms that Bob Cialdini talks about. In other words, these are things that Bob would say motivate people to act in addition to the survey elements that you showed. In other words, uh, knowing my neighbor did it may be enough for me to do that. Do you want to comment on that? Yes, absolutely. So in my home discipline, social psychology, is very much about how people influence each other. And the notion of social norms is a very sort of central one to that field. And so Bob Cialdini's arguments are that if you let people, uh, for example, if, here's, here's one way of thinking about this. Imagine you put a message in a hotel room saying, you know, hardly anybody um, puts their towels up on the rack after they use them. Usually they put them on the floor, and that leads us to have to wash them, and that leads us to use energy and, and, uh, and, and uh, water in ways that if only you would put the towel up on the rack, then that would be really, really helpful because you know, it's, it's, it would save us the, the, those resources. Uh, could you do it? Turns out people say, well, if nobody else does it, why would I do it? 
Um, whereas if you say most people, and not only most people, but most people like you do it, you say, oh, that sounds persuasive. Yeah, I guess there must be some good reason to do that. Okay, I'll do it. Um, so what's tricky here is it, that the notion is social norms. If you know that other people do it, it makes you more likely to do it. The problem is, think about voting in elections. Right? There's a social norm to vote in this country. What percentage of eligible voters vote? Half of them, about. So social norms don't always drive behavior in the direction that you want them to be driven. And the important point that Bob Cialdini's work is making is it's not broad norms that matter. It's not saying most people put the towel on the rack or most people who come to the hotel put their towel on the rack. The message he found to be most effective is most of the people who've stayed in the room that you're staying in put the towel on the rack, and you should do it as well. It's, you gotta really make that connection. And in his ingenious studies, what he did was to tell people that your neighbors are doing this and that, and then sure, that produces effects. The challenge is how broadly applicable is that? The irony is, think about the process there. There has to sort of be the desirable behavior out there in order to tell the few people who aren't doing it that most other people are doing it. So the challenge is how, how do you, it's like chicken and egg. How do you get the egg before the, the chicken and the chicken and the egg? And so frankly, I'm not sure I see the way out of that, but I am absolutely convinced that there are circumstances under which the right norms have the right impact on people. And you know, let's face it, uh, wasn't that many years ago when you could smoke in bars and restaurants and public places all over this country and something happened really quickly, you might call it a turning point, that shifted the social norms such that boom, it's, and not only here, I mean I just got back from a vacation in Europe and amazingly I was in a smoke-free restaurant once, wow. So the, the, the clearly norms can change and they can, they can change fast and that's what social psychologists are fascinated with and that's what may well happen, that's, that probably is what's happening with regard to climate change right now. But the challenge is, I think from the Chaldean perspective, how do, you, what do you, how do you make it happen instead of just watch it happen and say, wasn't that cool? I'm less clear about that. One last piece we didn't touch on, and this will be my very last question. <laughs> this whole notion of leadership, um, what's the social psychological power of it? And I'm reminded of the, uh, I did some reading at least recently on some famous speeches, and I was looking at John Kennedy's speech that he gave when they went to the moon or just before they went to the moon. He went down this litany of things that were just, if I were the average person on the street, I'd say, sure, and the moon is made out of cheese. <laughs> you know, we're going to build these machines. We don't know how. We don't know what the materials are. They're going to be incredible materials, and we're going to do it by this day. Mm -hmm. Totally preposterous. Mm -hmm. Yet the entire country lined up around that in the back of it. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, we did it. I mean, we could have easily have failed as well. But nonetheless, it had a psychological, social. I mean, but it gets to this point of leadership. I mean, how do you address the, the importance of leadership in these studies? Yeah I, 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 yeah, I don't think there's any doubt. I mean, you don't need to be told about research studies to know that a charismatic leader who makes a persuasive argument can pull the country very powerfully and quickly in a particular direction. Um, and the, the question for us as social scientists is, why does this speech by this person seem to have so much effect and that speech by that person does not have that much effect? And we're not in a good place to answer that quite yet. If we were, probably campaigns would be a heck of a lot more effective than they are. But I'm sure you're right that, that strong, intelligent leadership can produce social norms. And maybe the truth is, a little tiny bit of what I told you about here applies. If when the presidential candidates come to their debates in a few months and they're finally asked that climate change question 
And they don't say something like, well, if climate change is happening, or if scientists ever decide that climate change is happening, but rather they just say, well, since climate change is happening, here's what we need to do. That simple, small step might be actually quite a big one. Thank you. Thank you very much.